And uh, what a wonderful VBS skit to remind us of Vacation Bible School. If you're able, please stay for the uh, short meeting afterwards. Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis, yeah, 8. That's correct. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Uh, Don't be ashamed if that's new to you. Genesis chapter 8, and we're just eight chapters into Genesis. Uh, And we're going to talk about... God's remembrance and rescue of Noah. God's remembrance and rescue of Noah. We've been preaching through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And why are we going through Genesis chapters 1 through 11? We're going through Genesis chapters 1 through 11 because they are foundational to our faith. The book of Genesis and the truths in Genesis are foundational to the Christian faith. We can't compromise them. And when we start to compromise them and we start to say this wasn't real or this was fake or this was myth, it messes with the rest of the Bible. We see these themes of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 come up in the New Testament and come up in other parts of the Bible. There is a certain sport that I really, really, really enjoy. And it is football. Sometimes I wonder while watching football, why do I enjoy watching other people play a sport? Like I'm not the one playing, but I enjoy them watching it. I was reading a book. I think it was called um, Rewire Your Brain. It talks about the brain science that when you watch somebody do a certain sport, it activates the same things in your brain as if you're actually doing that. Or maybe it's, maybe it's not a sport. Maybe it's cooking or cleaning or whatever you have a bunch of, of joy doing. So, and if you enjoy cleaning and you just want more opportunities, just let me know. But uh, <laughs> I love football. But one thing we know about sports, whether football or baseball, or basketball, is it requires waiting, doesn't it? It's always maybe next season. The Pittsburgh Steelers were founded as a football team in 1933. You know, I lived in Cincinnati for five years. I'm originally from Dayton. I was riding with a Methodist pastor friend of mine, and he was a Bengals fan. He said, why can't the Bengals be like the Steelers. At least they're competitive. Even if you're, even if you're not, they're not winning uh, Super Bowls every year, at least they're competitive. Well, the first 40 or so years, the Steelers were not competitive. They were, they were horrible. In fact, I saw a show about the history of the Pittsburgh Steelers and one of the sons of Art Rooney, the founder, they were driving in a car probably back in the 50s or maybe early 60s, maybe even before that. And the car was having trouble getting up a hill in in Pittsburgh. And Art Rooney said something like, gee, my team can't win games. My car can't even get over the get over the hill. They were not a good team. The fans had to wait. They had to wait. Then in 1974, they won their first Super Bowl. They wait a long time for a good team to be a good team. What is it like to wait on something? How many of you really appreciate waiting on something? Do you ever want something and you want it now? Sports sports fans know what that's like oftentimes, but sports is just sports. But in serious matters, there are things that we have to wait on, right? Maybe getting married. Maybe a new job, 
Maybe, maybe you desperately need a new car, but you're waiting on funds to come through or to pay off one car or something like that. Maybe a house to be built. Maybe, maybe a sickness to get better. You're waiting. Maybe, maybe children, grandchildren, whatever it may be. Waiting. As I was preparing this message, one of my daughters wanted to learn how to sew. Megan began to teach her, but then thought that she needed someone more experienced to teach her. Our daughter was very disappointed. She wanted to learn how to sew, and she wanted to learn right then. She said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to YouTube, and YouTube will teach me to sew. You can learn about anything on YouTube now, just so you know. You know, I know people that learn how to change their brakes on YouTube and all kinds of stuff. I'm going to go to YouTube, and YouTube will teach me how to sew. And, and Megan and I, I came over and intervened too and said, no, 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 no. We're not going to let you play with needles based off YouTube. You know, we don't want that. We're going to get you the right person to teach you how to sew. She wanted to learn that very day. She had to wait. We're going to look at a passage in which Noah has been waiting for a long time. No, he has not been waiting for years. But he has been on the ark for at least 150 days. In total, he will be on the ark for close to a year. That's a long time to be on a boat. I like history and I love to study and read about history. And I'm amazed about the people 300 years ago who would come over on a boat from Europe to the colonies. Three months or something on a boat, waiting, waiting, dealing with the water quality, the stench of everything, the rough waves, the storms, waiting. Well, Noah has been on the ark uh, for at least uh, 150 days, and he will be on the ark for close to a year in total. My theme today is God remembers and rescues Noah and his family. God remembers and rescues Noah and his family. We've already talked about how God was bringing judgment, and many times we look at this passage and we think, how could God bring judgment? How could a, God do, God, a good God do that? And I've encouraged you to turn it around. Turn it around. And we could, we could think about it as Noah could be thinking, why doesn't God intervene? We know the whole world was corrupt, very, very, very corrupt. And God intervened. He put a stop to it. If the whole world were, was like the Nazis or Stalin and all the killing he did or ISIS, wouldn't we want God to intervene? If the whole world was getting involved in child sacrifice like they did later on in the Old Testament, we, wouldn't we want God to intervene? Well, God in his justice intervened. But God also in his mercy and love and grace allowed humanity to continue. He saved Noah and his family. And in saving Noah and his family, he provided a way for the Messiah, for Jesus to be a savior. In saving Noah and his family, he provided a way for all of us that someday we can live and have life and have eternal life in him. God is just And God is holy and God is righteous and one sin is an abomination to him. Just one sin is abomination to him. So the real question is, why didn't God intervene and just judge everyone right then? And we know why. Later in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 9 says, God desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. God desires a relationship with us, but God is holy. And as I repeatedly say, many times we think we're pretty good. We got it all right. That's 
because we're comparing ourselves with other human beings who are fallen in sin, not with God's standard. God's standard is totally, perfectly pure, totally holy, and one sin is against him. But in God's graciousness, in his love, he preserved a family, known as family. And through that, he provided a way for more humans to live and for salvation in the future. And now, Noah's on the boat. The floodwaters have come. The floodwaters have come from the sky above and from the earth below. I didn't get into how this happened. We just can't know for sure. Sometimes we try to connect dots. We just can't know about it. Could be that a, you know, a comet or maybe a bunch of comets and asteroids hit the earth and caused tidal waves. It could be, and I think it's quite likely that many of the volcanoes erupted um, the, the ring of fire and things like that, causing continental drift. It could be there was a canopy above the earth of ice, and many think that, and it collapsed during that time. And it's quite likely that after this, the flood actually caused the ice age and things like that. Uh, We can't know for sure. We do know the world is very corrupt and God brought a flood and God is in control and he can do what he wants to do. We do know that he's loving. Many times we question him, we forget. He's God. Romans 9 quotes Jeremiah saying, can the clay speak back to the potter and say, Why did you make me this way? What a funny illustration. Isaiah and Jeremiah both give those types of illustrations that people make an idol. They they get the material and they make the material or buy the material and they make an idol and they craft it and they give it eyes. But guess what? It's an idol. It can't see. They give it ears. But guess what? It's an idol. It can't hear. They give it arms but it can't walk. They give it, uh, it can't, arms, but it can't throw. Legs that it can't walk. I'm just testing you. They give it legs, but it can't walk. It can't do anything like that. And then the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, would say they bow down and worship it. God's not that way. God is the creator and sustainer. He hears all, he sees all, he is in control. There's a great story. You can look it up later if you want. 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5 and 6. 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5 and 6. One of my favorite stories to preach on. The Israelites take the whole, the um, Ark of the Covenant to battle. But their motivations are wrong. They take the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was like representative of God's power in God, you know, and they had the Ten Commandments in there and other things in there. Moses' staff that budded and things like that. And, and they take the Ark of the Covenant in battle and the Philistines beat them in battle and even take the Ark of the Covenant. They got it back later on. Don't worry. We saw that in Indiana Jones, didn't we? Um, Actually, we don't know where it is now, but they did get it back, but they take it and the Philistines take it and the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant in their temple in front of their fake God, Dagon, D-A-G-O-N, Dagon, like when you say Dagon, Dagon. So they put their Ark of the Covenant in front of their fake God. So it's almost like the God of Israel is bowing before Dagon, but the next day they go in there. And Dagon's down on the floor. He had fallen down. 
they prop him up. The next day they go in and Dagon's down and his hands and his feet are cut off. How'd that happen? God did it. God does not need us or the Israelites or anyone else. God is totally in control and all-powerful, and he bows to no one. God is in control. And eventually, the Ark of the Covenant made many of the Philistines very sick. And they thought, we got to get this Ark of the Covenant out of here. So they devised a plan to send it back to Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant came back to Israel. God is holy. He's righteous. And he's pure. And we're going to look at a passage here briefly where God remembers Noah and his family. So Noah's security. We see in verses 1 through 5. This is Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. God remembered Noah. Look at this, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Noah is in the ark. The flood has come. If you go and you talk to missionaries that go to different people all across the world, you know that pretty much, if not every civilization, has a story of a flood. Isn't that interesting? There's also something geologically called the Great Unconformity. We can go all across the world, and in our certain archaeological level, you see a major change in the, in the strata. I have pictures of it on my computer. Evidence of the flood. The floods happened. And now, but God remembered Noah. I love it whenever you see it in the Bible, but God. Romans chapter three, all about people sin. And then it says, but God. Ephesians chapter two, I think says the same thing, but God. God remembered Noah. Noah has been waiting on the ark. And it says, but God remembered Noah. A few other sources help us. The ESV study Bible says, but God remembered Noah. This marks the turning point in the flood story. This is a turning point in the flood story. When the Bible says that God remembers someone or his covenant with someone, it indicates that he is about to take action for that person's welfare. When the Bible says God remembers someone or God remembers his covenant with someone, it means God is about to take action for that person's welfare. We will see that later in Genesis 9.15 with Noah, in Genesis 19.29, Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, Exodus chapter 32, verse 13, Psalm 25, 6 and 7, Psalm 74, 2, and a host of other places in the Bible. When it says, but God remembers, God is about to take action. All life on the land having been destroyed, now God proceeds to renew everything. And this is echoing what God did in Genesis chapter 1 with creation. This, in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And now a wind, God creates a wind to blow and start drying things up. The Christian Standard Bible says, uh, this is a study Bible actually, it says, remembered does not suggest that God had ever forgotten about Noah. When used of God, remember suggests the initiation of a miraculous saving act of God. Other instances of God remembering as the first step in providing divine help for his people include his, in, his intervention in the lives of Lot. That's the passage in Genesis 19.29 I just mentioned. Rachel Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. In the Israelites in Egypt, that's the passage in Exodus 2.24 I mentioned. Using language that reflects God's initial act of creating the universe, 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God caused spirit, which is the Hebrew word ruach, or wind, to pass over the waters of the earth. The Hebrew word for spirit is the same word we get, we use for the word wind. Immediately, the water began to subside. In verse 2, God puts into reverse the process started in Genesis 7:11. So in Genesis 7:11, we see the beginning of how God flooded the earth, and now we see the reverse. God, you know, it's a total reverse. There's a climax at the end of Genesis chapter 7, and now it's kind of going back downhill. It's a total reverse, okay? The waters both rose and abated during the period of 150 days, and now they recede over a period of about 150 days. When it says mountains of Ararat, it indicates a range of mountains of which Mount Ararat is one which is modern-day Turkey, and, uh, Mount, and, and Mount Ararat is the highest. This text does not name the specific mountain on which the ark came to rest. We do not know the specific mountain. Remember the end of Genesis 7. In the end, every living thing that breathes oxygen had died. Only Noah and his family on the ark were left. Verse 1 says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with them in the ark. God was faithful to them. There are other passages about God remembering. I already mentioned many of them. Um, also, another one would be 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19, about Hannah. Psalm 105, 42, about God remembering his promises. And of course, we could get in the New Testament about God remembering us as well. Verse 1 further says, God made a wind blow over the earth. The water subsided. Now look at verses 2 through 4. We're just going to walk through the rest of these 14 verses. Verses 2 through 4. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were, uh, the rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Again, mountains of Ararat, 150 days, the waters recede. The water stopped coming. Remember, the water had come out from underground as well as the sky. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. The rain has now stopped. In Genesis 7, 24, it said the waters prevailed on the earth. 150 days prevailed. It meant that the waters, uh, the waters had control over the earth for 150 days. The waters now recede from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, or other translations read, decreased, decreased. The waters flow into the the lakes and the rivers and make canyons and all kinds of things like that. By the way, it's fascinating the damage that water can do. I referenced that before. I kind of question, I can't prove it, but wonder if the Grand Canyon was created after the flood. We also know the great destruction that cataclysmic events can do. For example, Mount St. Helens created a canyon 150 feet deep in a day because of the power of the earth of things like that. So then we see the seventh day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Notice it does say mountains. I've already pointed that out. It's plural. It is one of the mountains in that range. Then verse 5 shares that the waters continue to decrease. The tops of the mountains are now seen. Remember, the waters had covered all the mountains. Genesis chapter 7, verse 20. I kind of question and think it's quite possible the mountains were lower at that point, and then they rose up as the flood ended. And now we see Noah's search. Noah's search for life and for land in verses 6 through 12. Noah's going to search for life. Look at verses 6 and 7. At the end of 40 days, 
Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. So now 40 days later, Noah is still waiting, waiting for the Lord to say, okay, it's time to go out. He's putting out feelers, so to speak. He's seeking the Lord using this raven. There's a process. He opens the window. Guess what? Rabbis have suggested that Noah first sent out a raven, a ritually unclean bird, because it was expendable. The fact that it went back and forth from the ark means that it could find no suitable habitat. No suitable habitat for the raven and the raven being unclean because later Noah was going to need other birds for sacrifices. He's going to make sacrifices later on. So the raven is unsuccessful. It cannot find dry ground. It went to and fro. In other words, it was coming and going. And then we see the successful attempt by the dove in verses uh, 8 through 12. After one earlier attempt, the dove finds dry ground. Returning with a freshly plucked olive leaf in its beak. Look at verses 8 through 12 with me. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. Notice it says he waited another seven days. He sends out the ark again. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. Goodbye, dove. I know he's known the dove for a long time. The dove is now gone. But that was a sign that there was land. Noah knows now that the waters had abated, that is, receded. The waters had now receded. This also shows that the waters did not only recede, but there was also life. There was plant life. Then verse 12, seven days later, he sends out the dove, and she does not return. So there's a process here of the dove returning and the dove not returning. And now we see Noah's surveillance. All that's happened. There's a process. And then in verses uh, 13 through 14, Noah's surveillance. Noah removes the ark's covering and he surveys a new world after the flood. Think about how neat this would be. The world is totally different. The 600, this is verse 13. And the 600 year and first year and the 600 and first year and the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. There's some form of covering. And by the way, all this dating, like why does it have to list 600 and first year? All this dating is showing the validity, the truth of what's going on here, the truth of this being a real event. It's not just made up. And Noah removes the ark covering. We don't really know how he covered it, but he removes it and he looks and he sees everything and it's dried up. He sees a dry ground. The ESV study Bible says the emerging of a new world prefigures the creation of the new heaven and new earth. Get this. The emerging of a new world. This is a new world. It's totally different. We see that in Genesis 9. Megan and I like to watch these shows about like, we like to get entertainment off of other people's suffering. And not really, but... (laughs) 
There's shows on like Animal Planet and National Geographic. And there's a new one. There was one called <clears throat> I Was Prey. And now there's a new one saying um, called um, Something Bit Me. And it's about getting bit by a rattlesnake. Or This person said snakes are so well created and all that. And I'm thinking, again, the only good snake is a dead snake. But anyways... There was a one where a woman's biking out west, and she gets attacked by a mountain lion. And they talked about how mountain lions, and another one was a jogger, and he got attacked by a mountain lion also. So the main lesson is don't jog and don't bike. If you don't do that stuff, you won't get attacked by a mountain lion. But um, the mountain lion comes and attacks the woman, and they, they on this show, it's really neat because they have biologists and others describing how animals usually behave. And they usually will not attack people. Even snakes, even though they're usually feared, and I've heard this in multiple sources, they don't usually want to bite people. Now, I'm still afraid of them because I don't know that that snake's not a rogue snake. But usually they do not want to bite people. Mountain lions usually do not want to attack people. In Genesis 9, we realize it's a different world. And God says that he has put the fear of humanity in every living thing. And we still see that today. Usually animals, like my dad always told me about spiders, more afraid of us than we are of them, and even mountain lions. It's a different world. And Noah opens the ark, and he sees a new world, a different world. And in this different world, it's, it prefigures, it prefigures that someday, as we see in Revelation 21, and someday, as we see in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7, someday there will be a different world again a new heaven and new earth. You get tired of suffering, so do I. So do all of us. It's right to grieve at the passing of a loved one. It's right to grieve. We grieve differently. As Christians, we grieve differently. But that grief and that suffering, in that, it's always a reminder that this is not the perfect world yet. This is not the world that God is meant for the future. Someday there will be a new world again, a different world again, and it's going to be perfect with no more sickness or pain or suffering. Verse 14 says, In the second month on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Now we're going to see next week that Noah still did not leave the ark. He waited for God to tell him when it was okay. He was obedient. The earth is now dry, and this is one month later. Now let's make some applications. This passage is all about God's care for Noah. We must patiently wait and trust God as Noah did. Are we able to patiently wait and trust God? As Noah did. We can trust God. God continues to be faithful to his covenant with Noah. He is faithful. Noah obeyed. Noah waited. And God was faithful. God, remember verse 1, God remembered Noah. He also gave us marching orders as we wait. As we wait, you know what we're supposed to do? Noah was supposed to wait. We're supposed to wait. Know what we're supposed to do? Share the gospel. Matthew 20, 19 through 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, unto Jesus. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says he's going to be with us always to the end of the age. And guess what we're all supposed to do? Teaching them, the disciples, to obey all that Jesus commanded. As we wait, we're to spread the gospel. 
And remember this. It takes about 12 conversations for somebody to be a Christian. Sometimes you come along and you're the first conversation and you think you failed in sharing the gospel. No, you didn't. You're that first conversation. You're planting seeds. Okay, sometimes you come along in the middle towards the end. Don't force things. Have God space. In other words, have, have God in your conversations. Talk about how, how much Jesus in your life means to you. Talk about praying with other people. Invite people to church. Have God conversations. As we wait, we're not to be anxious, but pray. That's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Sometimes it's difficult for that because we have physiological things. We have other dangers in our life. But Philippians 4, 6, and 7, one of the things we are to do is to pray. Do not be anxious for anything, but in all situations, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God in the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We are to pray. And guess what? We are also to pray with the body of Christ. You know, we see so many times in the New Testament about the power of praying with the body of Christ. Acts 13, when the, the people were together in pretty much a prayer meeting, and God set, said, God communicated them to set, us all, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the mission work. You need to be involved in small groups and or Sunday school classes and or Bible studies. We all need the body of Christ more than an hour Sunday morning. We also must rejoice. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We must be different. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. When we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have different fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now that fruit, we don't maybe all have it all at once. We're called to be different. We must love God and others, Matthew 22, 37 through 39. We must trust God's promises. His promises are in his word. He promised to be with us always. That's Matthew 28, 20. That's John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Jesus said, I don't leave you as orphans. I send. He sends the Holy Spirit to us. Jesus said it was better that he ascends to heaven, that he goes away. So we can send the helper who is the Holy Spirit. He promised to come again. Second Peter 3, 8 through 10, Jesus said he, well, he said it throughout the Bible, but Second Peter 3, 8 and 10 is about Jesus coming again. We must trust Romans 8, 28. You know what Romans 8, 28 says? All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. In reality, if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, there is no tragedy You might perceive something as a tragedy. But that's because we see it from our viewpoint, not from God's viewpoint. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, one of the most awesome verses in the Bible. Joseph's father, Jacob, had died. And his brothers thought, now Joseph's going to get back at them because he's now the, the vice president of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt. And Joseph looked at his brothers and he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God can take tragedies and turn them around and use them for good. All things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. What is it like to wait? To use a funny illustration, the Steelers, because it's not a serious illustration. The Steelers had 40 horrible football seasons, like horrible football seasons. 
And then they have some good seasons. But then what happened? Their quarterback, Terry Bradshaw, retired. Many of the other players retired. Chuck Knoll looked at his wife and said, we're going to have some bad seasons. The team's getting older. Players are retiring. They struggled again. It took them another 21 years to get another Hall of Fame quarterback. They had some years of waiting. And now they may be waiting again. And, of course, different football teams are waiting. That's the thing about sports, right? It teaches us patience, right? It does. It teaches us patience. And in real life, we wait over serious issues. Maybe you're waiting for a child, an adult child, grandchildren, to come back to the Lord or to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe you're, and that's the most important thing, to pray and pray and pray and pray for. In this passage, Noah was patient and God was faithful. There'd be more waiting in the Old Testament. Abram had to wait on God. Abram had to wait on God a lot. The Israelites in Egypt had to wait on God. And everyone had to wait until God sent the Messiah, Galatians 4, 4 to 5. So now we are waiting until Jesus comes back again. And we can be sure that God is faithful. In his time, he will come again. Trust him. He's worth waiting for. He's worth trusting. I'm going to pray to close this sermon time right now. If God has laid anything on your heart during this final song, we will have people up here to pray with you. If you want to come forward, and, and this coming forward is not just about receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, though that's great too. If you don't know Jesus and you want to know more about knowing Jesus or coming to know Jesus, Lord and Savior, definitely come forward. We'd be glad to talk to you and pray with you. But maybe God has laid something else on your heart. Maybe you're really struggling, waiting, and you can really use somebody to pray with you right now. You know, there is strength in praying with others. You're praying by yourself is great too, and you can keep on doing that, but pray with, let other people pray with you. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 talks about a cord of three strands is not easily broken. We're stronger when you're brought together. Maybe you're waiting on something and you could really use somebody to pray with you, whether it's waiting on a spiritual need, a loved one, a spouse, a child to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, or waiting on healing or dealing with a disability in your life or your children or grandchildren's life, or maybe dealing with anxiety or depression. Come on forward and let us pray with you. Let's pray with you. Let's support each other together. Let's be bound together, woven together, encouraged together. Or maybe there's something else that you just could you really use prayer for. If you want to pray by yourself, that's certainly fine too. But um, prayer is so powerful. We want to encourage you in prayer. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, I thank you for this example of Noah. It'd be so easy if I was in Noah's place to say, I see water. I'm exiting the ark now. But he waited. He waited and he waited. And you were faithful. You did not forget Noah in the ark. You did not leave him there just to die in the ark. You were not some wicked God just trying to bring on punishment on people. But you remembered Noah. And in remembering Noah, you remembered all of us as well. Lord God, if anyone here right now doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day. May today be the day for them to surrender to you. Maybe some have strayed from you. Today's a day to turn back to you. Maybe some have always believed in you, but they're not really committed to you. May today be the day to really commit to you. And may they tell you that in a simple prayer, acknowledging that they are confessing they are a sinner in need of a Savior, believing in you as the one and only Savior, trusting in you and committing to you.
Lord God, help us all committing to you, trusting in you, living with you. Thank you so much that we are not alone. Sometimes we feel alone, but ultimately, you are always with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We also have a wonderful church family wanting to help each other out. And Lord, if it would be helpful for anyone to have people to pray with them today. Sometimes it's difficult to come forward. But I pray maybe they'd grab a friend to come forward with them or a spouse or, or something. That's perfectly fine. Draw them forward to pray together. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.